Say hello to Hubbard Free from the Samuel Hubbard Shoe Company. The shoe that kickstarted a revolution, prompting thousands of five-star reviews and a cult-like following. Our original style has the flexibility and comfort of athletic shoes, but the elevated details of a dress shoe. Treat your feet. Visit SamuelHubbard.com. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. If you've been watching the Democratic debates, you might have noticed that there haven't been many questions about foreign policy or the country's forever wars. On some level, it's unsurprising. The media has been laser focused on the excesses of the Trump administration for the past four years, leaving little time to discuss other countries, except for Russia and China, or what America's role in the world is. In the cover story for the March issue, author Andrew J. Basevich argues that the United States foreign policy, the idea that America and its interventions overseas represent both freedom and power, has largely remained the same since World War II, though its justifications have changed with the times. I spoke with Basevich about his article. Here's our conversation. I wanted to begin by asking about the start of your essay, which is a quote from a speech by General George C. Marshall in 1942, months after the attack on Pearl Harbor. And he said, quote, we are determined that before the sun sets on this terrible struggle, our flag will be recognized throughout the world as a symbol of freedom on the one hand of overwhelming force on the other. You see him as naming a purpose for U.S. foreign policy that, in many ways, the country is still clinging on to. How would you describe that project, and why has it become a problem? Well, I think, I think the issue is that uh, for us, for the United States exclusively, there is no incompatibility between possessing power and advancing the cause of freedom. Indeed, because we are who we are, our use of power in our judgment helps to spread freedom. And the fact that we're spreading freedom provides all the necessary justification for us accumulating power in the first place. I should explain that I came across his quote because it was used to introduce that very famous set of World War II propaganda films uh, created by Frank Capra called Why We Fight. And uh, I have from time to time, those films are available, of course, uh, uh, online, watched them or parts of them to try to understand a little bit of the mood that existed in the country or at least the mood that the government wanted to exist in the country during World War II. And he uses the Marshall quote to introduce those films. And so I found the quote itself striking, but I also found it striking that Capra would have employed the Marshall quote in such a significant way. How so? Well, the purpose of the film series, have you seen those films? Yes, and there's actually an excellent documentary about them called Five Came Back, which is about the production of, yes. including Capra. Yes, yes. Yeah. 
Yes, but the but the various directors who went to war. Yes, George Stevens was one. Uh, John Huston, I think, was one. Yes, well, I think those are really his really significant historical documents. They they portray the war from a very particular point of view. The purpose of the films is to mobilize the American people to explain why we fight. And so the use of that quotation from General Marshall, who in his day was far and away, well, not far and away, along with MacArthur and Eisenhower, uh, Marshall was clearly the most famous and most influential person in uniform. It, it, just, it just struck me that there was something very important about that, about that quote. So then I, you know, I backtracked to, into the, to, the, to the larger text that was a remark he made in an uh, address to the graduating cadets at West Point in May of 1942. So I wanted to read that entire address, which expands upon that theme in important ways. Does never, never, never in that address does he mention, does Marshall use the word peace in trying to explain what it is we're fighting for or what we hope to achieve. I was also struck by the fact that Marshall made the point in his West Point address that for for the United States to achieve that objective of being recognized around the world, having the flag recognized as a symbol of both freedom and power, the instrument for, for, for achieving that, Marshall said, was a great citizen army. In other words, we weren't going to create a, 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 a military machine of professionals, but it was going to be a great army consisting of citizen soldiers so that the army in itself was going to be a representative of, of freedom and democracy. Now, when Marshall said that in 1942, he was actually expressing a view that most Americans probably were already familiar with, this, this notion of, of a citizen army being the, the principal force that would defend the country or, or achieve the country's purposes in wartime. And of course, we are so distant from that. We have long ago abandoned the notion of a citizen army in favor of a, of a professional army. And it's been one of my hobby horses <laughs> to, to try to make the point that the professional army is both undemocratic uh, and, and doesn't serve the country's uh, national security interests. Right. You argue in the piece that Marshall's project isn't relevant anymore and that Marshall himself would probably agree if he was around today. So what would you like to see it replaced with? And do you see any route to that happening in this political climate? Well, the answer to the second question is no. Uh, I guess no with an asterisk. I mean, in, in this sense, you know, we are, this, this Trump moment is so odd that in a sense, I think it's very difficult for us to say with any kind of certainty What's going to come after Trump? And I don't mean who's going to ultimately follow him in the White House, but but to the extent that the American people come to appreciate that Trump is a disaster, 
Certainly, I believe he's a disaster. Mm-hmm. But you know, probably what, 40% of the country thinks he's great. Yeah. But if over time we come to appreciate that he has been a disaster, then it might become possible to have a serious discussion, political debate, over how to not simply repair the damage that he has done, which is substantial, but I think more importantly, how to repair the damage that was done that ultimately found expression in the election of Donald Trump. Hmm. What was the damage that was done that gave us Trump? Well, I think this is actually the subject of a book that I published in January. Hmm. I think the damage that was done comes in in several forms. One of them is the the belief that globalization is somehow going to make everybody rich, right. uh, or at least make everybody prosperous, when in fact it has created enormous economic inequality uh, and, and left many people simply behind. Yeah. Uh, but another, another element of what I call a post-Cold War consensus was this belief in American military power, the conviction that we were militarily supreme, that we would always be militarily supreme. And of course, that has collapsed mm-hmm. uh, because of the experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, and elsewhere. And also, and here's where my conservative Catholic <laughs> inclination comes through, I think we've, we've, we've bought into a deeply flawed conception of freedom, you know, all kinds of rights, no real obligations, an emphasis on individual identity, a, a, a loss of any appreciation of, of the common good as the, the pursuit of the common good as a purpose of society. Mm-hmm. And, and it's my analysis, and actually I think it's the analysis of, of, of others, that it was in response to these flawed notions in the post-Cold War era, to their in response to their failures that gave us Trump. So Trump's, Trump's going to go away. Uh, you know, <laughs> the sooner the better. Right. But I think then the issue becomes what, what comes after Trump, not so much in terms of an individual. I mean, I don't get all excited about Joe Biden. Uh, but in terms of a new politics that would correct those deficiencies that gave us Trump in the first place. Right. Uh, you know, something larger than one person, something larger than a president, something that is an actual concerted effort to to deal with what his predecessors meant and also to find a different way. Yeah. I mean, so what, I mean, what you're saying there is, you know, we need a movement. We need a we need a new value set uh, that that can reunify the country. I say a new set doesn't mean necessarily new values, but 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 some mechanism that will seal the divisions that are so apparent in our society. And and you know, I, I hope to see that happen. I don't know I don't know how it will happen. I mean in part because both of our political parties are so broken. I mean yeah. the Republican Party is just I really think beyond saving at this point, it is so corrupt. And the Democratic Party, at least the centrist part of the Democratic Party, you know, the Biden mm-hmm. Party, the Hillary Clinton Party, bereft of ideas, I think. 
And, you know, I myself was kind of excited about the possibility of Warren getting the nomination or Bernie getting the nomination. Mm -hmm. But as you and I talk, that doesn't seem to be in the cards. Yeah. I mean, we can't we can't talk about that too much because the primaries are tonight and I just can't. That's too heartbreaking. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. He came in second. Like Bernie came in second. Like that's not anything to be ashamed of and i mean he could still turn it around miraculously maybe i don't know well but i mean but the bernie phenomenon and and i'm not i'm i'm a casual observer of american politics i'm not really a student of american politics that's a healthy thing to be i should say (laughs) but 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 bernie in 2016 the challenge that he mounted to the candidate that the entire establishment said you know, she was the anointed one. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he mounted that challenge to her really was astonishing. I mean, incredible. And even if he even if he ends up not doing as well this time as he did last time, I still think that there's a significance to the Sanders phenomenon. Absolutely. Uh, that, that, that tells us that the status quo is unsustainable. You know, Bernie's Bernie's, Bernie's, what is he, 78? I don't, I don't, I don't think he's going to make another run in uh, 2024. Oh, my God. Uh, but, but, <laughs> but, but one can imagine that there will be another sort of uh, a champion, sort of, you know, maybe, maybe it'll be Warren, but somebody else who will, you know, pick up that, pick up that torch and, and lead, lead the cause and bring about real change. We're just going to have to see. Right. No, you're right. But to get back to the piece for a second and not totally make this podcast dated <laughs> to the point, but dated by one day and then totally irrelevant because that's how fast things move now. Um, talking about a moment of sea change, a moment of thinking about what it means to be an American differently, you describe how the debate about intervention into World War II wasn't just about the evils of Nazism. It was about whether America could forget the loss and humiliation it had suffered during and after World War I. And it was also about expansion. Those who were against intervention felt that American expansion had gone far enough. Of course, the attack on Pearl Harbor made the debate irrelevant. But how exactly was intervention related to expansionist ambitions? In other words, how did the, what did the U.S. stand to gain from the war? Yeah, I guess this uh, this gets to my overarching interpretation of the history of American statecraft, and I believe that the central theme of American statecraft, going back to the very immediate aftermath of the Revolutionary War, the central theme has been expansionism. And expansion has taken a number of forms. You know, sometimes it's uh, signing a treaty with France and we take over the entire Louisiana Purchase territory. Uh, Sometimes it involves invading countries and taking what we want, like the Mexican War of 1846-1848. Sometimes it involves sort of beating up on indigenous people and chasing them off the lands that they have lived in for a long time. So there's a variety of ways that we have expanded, but the fact of the matter, key crucial fact here, is the way we go from being 13 small states 
huddled along the eastern seaboard in the 1780s to becoming the most powerful and richest country on the planet by 1945 is as a result of opportunistic expansionism. So set that aside. Now, the discussion of U.S. foreign policy, partly by scholars, but even more so by journalists and by politicians, insists that there is a different narrative. And the narrative they tell is one of a country that wants nothing more than to turn away from the world and ignore the world, to isolate itself from the world. And indeed, from that point of view, which I think is utterly false, from that point of view, the overarching tendency in American statecraft is isolationism. And this emphasis on isolationism, in particular, comes to the fore in the debate over whether or not to intervene in the European war that begins in September of 1939, the war against Adolf Hitler. And the way that that debate is portrayed is that it's a debate between enlightened internationalists who recognize the evil of Hitler and indeed recognize that Hitler poses a threat to the United States, not simply to Europe. That camp pitted against the isolationists who are not only depicted as people who want to turn away from the world, but are also depicted as anti-Semites. So isolationism, in, from this point of view, isolationism and anti-Semitism are, are sort of one and the same. Even though a lot of isolationists at the time were, you know, members of socialist or communist organizations in the United States. Bingo, bingo, bingo. You're, oh, no, but, and let, let me emphasize, just so I hope nobody can take this out of context. There were anti-Semites in the anti-interventionist movement. And Charles Lindbergh, who probably was the most prominent leader, if you want a leader in a sense of a party leader, was clearly an anti-Semite. But what doesn't follow is that the anti-interventionist movement, and you note I'm using anti-interventionist here, not isolationist. Mm -hmm. It doesn't follow that the anti-interventionist movement was itself an anti-Semitic movement. Well, what was, what was it? What was it about? And my argument is it was about trying not to repeat the debacle of World War I. From our 2020 perspective, that's a 2020 vision, the year 2020, <laughs> World War I basically doesn't register, I think, in, in our common everyday appreciation of the American story. All we know is it came before World War II. Right. But it was a disaster. You know, the war began in 1914. President Woodrow Wilson declared we would be neutral. We immediately began, almost immediately began, loaning money to the Brits and the French, which put our prosperity basically in hock to their war effort. 1917, Wilson decides that we need to enter the war with the, the German introduction of un, reintroduction of unrestricted submarine warfare as the proximate cause. It takes us a year, basically, more than a year, to raise an army, a citizen army, and send it to France and prepare it for battle so that we really don't get in the war in a major way 
until September of 1918. And of course, the war ends on November 11th of 1918. So we're only in the fight for like two and a half months, in the fight in a big way. Well, what's the outcome? Well, the outcome is 116,000 American dead. That's twice as many as are killed in, in Vietnam at a time when the American population is roughly one-third what it is today. So that'd be equivalent of a loss of something like 450,000 soldiers in a war that lasted three and a half months. Now, to be fair, many of those casualties were people killed by the influenza epidemic. I think the, I think the battle losses were you know, roughly half of that. But nonetheless, 116,000 dead bodies. And what did we get? Well, we didn't get a hell of a lot. I mean, the French, the French and the Brits expanded their empires as a result of World War I. The Germans lost their empire. And all the promises made by Woodrow Wilson did not come to pass. The result was not peace for all times. It was not, it was not a world made safe for democracy. And so very quickly after World War I, a very substantial, I think it would be fair to say a majority of the American people decided that entry into World War I an unprecedented change in U.S. policy had been a horrible mistake. Well, you fast forward to the end of the 1930s, and we have the interventionists. And let me emphasize that the interventionists were correct. Their cause was the correct cause. But we had, again, a whole bunch of Americans who said, hey, wait a second. We did this back in 1917 and 1918. We don't want to do it again. We already basically control the Western Hemisphere. You know, we control North America from sea to shining sea. We don't need more. After Pearl Harbor, they lost the argument. But again, my, my, my point is to try to emphasize that the argument was not about isolationism or internationalism. It was about whether to continue or resume the progress of expansionism or to be content with what we had. Right. And I think the question of what we are content to have is also, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with what's going to follow Trump. And I think a large appeal of Trump is that he was a Republican who came out against the Iraq war. And he said it was a bad idea, even though it contradicted things he had said in the past. It was this huge sea change. It was a huge moment. And his his stated objectives of isolationism, even though there's definitely not been any shortage of wars or bad military things going around thanks to the United States. Today, isolationism has become kind of a scapegoat of the foreign policy establishment. Absolutely. And and their explanation for why American empire isn't functioning as intended. So can you talk about how that's sort of a misleading scare word in present day? Yeah, I mean, the argument is because, the, the, the argument goes, the damn isolationists are getting in the way. You know, the damn isolationists aren't, aren't, aren't letting us get on with what we're called to do. When you look at the post-World War II era, the era that George C. Marshall was looking toward when he gave that speech in 1942, where, where he intended, he hoped, he wished, that the flag would represent overwhelming power and also freedom. While taking into account the Cold War, 
as in a sense, this great, what? Pause almost. After World War II, we resume this expansionist project. Now, we don't resume it because we're trying to add the Republic of Vietnam to become the 51st state, but it's expansionism intended to establish, if you're a political scientist, hegemony. If you're not a political scientist, empire, at least formal empire, but primarily relying on the possession and the use of American military power. That story is a complicated one, particularly if you take seriously the the outcome of the Vietnam War. But it seems to end on a happy note. In 1989, when the Cold War ends and the Soviet Union quickly vanishes from the face of the earth, it seems like that's a validation of this notion of American power and the world's freedom somehow working hand in hand. And if you fast forward a little bit more to 9-11 and then to the the speeches that President George W. Bush gives in the wake of 9-11, man, the, uh, the freedom and power formula comes roaring back big time and finds expression in a series of wars that didn't go well, to put it mildly, and in the case of the Iraq war, produced a catastrophic outcome. And it's, it's that, I think, it's that, I think, that lent resonance to Trump's campaign rhetoric back in 2016. <laughs> Talking about America first, you know, re- resurrecting that controversial term from the run-up to World War II. Talking about America first being his intended theme of, of foreign policy. Now, we need to pause and note that he doesn't have a foreign policy. Exactly. He doesn't have any principles. There's nothing he does except, I suppose, for like uh, trade negotiations, which demonstrates any particular consistency. He has not ended American wars as he promised to do, although maybe we're about to get out of the Afghanistan war. But his foreign policy has been a dog's breakfast. Nonetheless, when the American people heard him, interpreted him as saying, that we were going to cease this effort of harnessing American power in order to expand freedom. I think they responded very positively. You know, where's that going to go from here? You know, again, how is that going to play out in a post-Trump world when we may once more end up with a president who actually believes <laughs> what he or she uh, says and actually tries to to act in a consistent way on what he or, or she professes to believe. I have no idea how that's going to play out. But I do think that the Trump election, which was in many ways a, a, an earthquake, was a repudiation of the imperial or hegemonic thrust of U.S. policy to which both of the political parties have been uh, devoted. Right, because I think there's a misconception that the Democratic Party has always been the anti-war party, which is absolutely not the case at all, if you look at history. You got that right. Um, And also, Mm -hmm. even just how we conceive of war was deeply changed by Bill Clinton, where it's like, oh, this is a humanitarian war. Yep. Justifications change. Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. And methods, methods change, you know, the reliance on, uh, on air power, on drones, assassinations, uh, you know, 
fewer boots on the ground because when there's boots on the ground, there tends to be significant U.S. casualties. And that's the one thing that the American people have a very low tolerance for. There can be all kinds of people getting killed. But as long as you're not Americans getting killed, then the American people kind of tune things out. I think one interesting question, again, it's a question for which I don't have a good answer. You made the point that I'll call it American militarism because I wrote a book called The New American Militarism, that, that both parties have subscribed to this militarism, meaning placing such a high emphasis, value, on maintaining overwhelming, well, supposedly overwhelming military power and then putting it to work. This is something the Democrats and Republicans have both uh, subscribed to, especially uh, since the end of the Cold War. And it'll be interesting to see if either party is able to learn the lessons, particularly of the post-9-11 period, to come up with a different framework for national security policy, a different way of thinking about what our military should look like and what it's, what it's good for, the expectation so prominent in the post-Cold War period that we can use American military power to remove regimes not to our liking and to put in their place new regimes, a new political order that will somehow or other come closer to expressing our own values. We've tried that over and over and over again. And I guess you could point to, you know, maybe Bosnia as a partial success. But by and large, they've been very costly failures. And I am struck by how little those failures actually figure in the current political cycle. You know, back when we had like 15 Democrats on the stage at the same time, they didn't talk about foreign policy. No. The only way they talked about the Iraq war was who voted for it and who voted against it. But there was no serious effort to assess the, the lessons of that war that would somehow inform policy going forward. I'll be interested to see how long the parties can agree to ignore the failures of U.S. policy since 9-11. Yeah, and that goes for, also goes for things like the Patriot Act, and yeah. the National Security Administration, the amount of control they have over yep. our personal freedom. <laughs> yep. The irresponsibility of the Congress with regard to war powers. There's a little background chit-chat about that. You know, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe something should be done so the presidents can unilaterally get us involved in wars. But the chit-chat doesn't end up really producing anything like real restraints uh, on, a, on a president. Yeah, can we talk? Actually, let's talk about that for a second because there has been, probably since the Vietnam War onward, this real concentration of power upward to the yeah. president. And obviously, one of the main ideas, one of the main ideas of American government is checks and balances. And now that seems to be completely off the table, and there's executive orders. It's just this unbelievable amount of power that. You know, Obama was some philosopher king and he could maybe do it not so grotesquely <laughs> or in right. your face. But now Trump is in there and it's like, oh, my God. Yeah. So where did this come from? Exactly. If I were writing a book about this, I would begin the book with the Depression. You know, 1932, the election of 1932, which brings Franco Roosevelt to the White House, a time of 
not, not, not with regard to foreign policy, but domestically, really an unprecedented crisis. Well, no, not compared to the Civil War, of great crisis. And the American people looked to Franklin Roosevelt to save the day. That individual, that person, the president. And I think it would be wrong to say he did save the day because the actual accomplishments of the New Deal are somewhat mixed. But the seed was planted that salvation comes from the White House. And of course, that was reaffirmed by the fact that by the time we're in his third term in office, we're entering World War II. And again, this enormous crisis, our way of life threatened in the expectation that the leadership to get us through that crisis has to come from the White House. No sooner does World War II end than we enter the Cold War. The surrender ceremony in the Japan is September 1945 by the spring of 1947. Cold War is getting in full swing. Again, a time of great danger. And once the Soviets detonate the bomb in August of 1949, not simply a time of great danger, but a time when the very survival of our country now seems to be at risk. And what's the response to that? More power to the president. So I think if you, if you put those three moments together, the Depression, World War II, and then the Cold War, together they handed the president, or the commander-in-chief, as we like to call him, ever greater amounts of authority in all kinds of ways, which really meant, of course, that the Congress was forfeiting authority. Congress was washing its hands of responsibility uh, for the conduct of the nation's affairs. I'm, I'm overstating the point. But nonetheless, there's an essential truth there. And although the Cold War ended in 1989, and again, there's a certain amount of chit-chat about uh, you know, rebalancing authority between the legislative branch and the executive branch, it never really amounted to anything. You know? <laughs> and then we end up with Trump. And people say, oh, my God, how could we have allowed this to happen? Well, we allowed it to happen over the course of decades, and it's going to take quite a while to correct the situation. And frankly, you don't see a heck of a lot of willingness on the part of the Congress to take that problem seriously because the Congress is so divided along uh, partisan lines. A big part of your argument in the piece is that American expansionism is inseparable or sort of works part and parcel with racial oppression. So that goes from the Northwest Ordinances to the Louisiana Purchase, to all of, you know, the injustices suffered by Native Americans, and to, to slavery. So I wanted to, to get back at this question of freedom and force as both a foreign policy project and a domestic project. Because in a sense, it seems like Americans' freedom itself has always been partly conceived as the capacity for expansion. And do you have any thoughts on how the U.S. might find a new conception of freedom that is not expansionist and that would not be this ideal of unlimited growth? In some respects, I think that's a $64 question. So I just, I just finished writing an essay that's not been published anywhere, reflecting on this 1619 project. Mm. You know what that is? Yes. For, the, for people who don't know, the 1619 Project, it's this multimedia 
ongoing project from the New York Times begun on the 400th anniversary of the first uh, slave ships to arrive in what would become America that had African slaves on them. And it makes the argument that that was the actual founding of the United States. Everything and that everything that flowed forth from that moment shaped the country, uh, both you know economically, socially, in terms of government, lots of different yeah. things. Biggest big rights. No, this is not some kind of little article in the uh, New York Times. This is a cause. This is a crusade, and the purpose of the crusade is to reframe American history. They use that term, frame. And the 1619 Project argues that everything that happens after that basically stems from that that moment. That slavery and then the oppression suffered by black people after the abolition of slavery, that that is the defining theme of our country. In other words, it's not July 4th, 1776, all men are created equal, inalienable rights. And I don't... I think that project is deeply flawed in in many ways. But nonetheless, it is an effort, a high-profile effort, an effort that's causing a lot of discussion to rethink our founding and our purpose in a fundamental way, to discard the notion that we are all about liberty. And that opens up a possibility, I think, for a interesting discussion that could ultimately, I'm not saying it will, I'm in fact, I doubt that it will, but could ultimately lead to a discussion about what our purpose in the world ought to be and, and therefore get to questioning Marshall's formulation that American freedom and American power are perfectly compatible, the one reinforcing and sustaining the other. We're nowhere near that kind of a discussion. The Republicans and Democrats wouldn't even know where to begin that kind of a discussion. But it does seem to me that if the 1619 Project gains traction, and I don't know if it will, but if it gains traction, then a lot of other things that seem to be off limits will no longer be off limits. And that could could be pretty darn interesting. Yeah, because there's, again, there's been the line of what America is and what is meant to be is so straight and kind of if you try to deviate from that, you'll get told, no, that's not really what happened. But yeah, yeah, it is it is excellent that there are at least questions being asked and, and, and in a way that's very thoroughly thought out. It's not just some sort of contrarian argument for the sake of it. This is like a real, really serious. Yeah. Thing. So, yeah, again, I don't I don't I don't buy their answer. But I think you put your finger on it. There's a willingness to ask questions on the part of the Times that I, I think may, be, may hold great promise. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 